turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy 20, which will also be our text for today. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight, you, fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, the commander shall be appointed at the head of the people. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. For if it makes no peace, but if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the woman and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction." the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food, you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. So far the reading of God's word. Beloved in the Lord, one of the areas where the church will necessarily have a very different approach to Israel and the laws of Israel is warfare. The church 
is not given a physical sword to enact the judgment of God. Christ has radically changed our attitudes toward different nations as well. What was once a wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles has now been joined together. The claim of the New Testament is that he not only died for the Jews, but for the world. And doing so fulfilled the law in a way that broke down the wall of hostility that was between Jew and Gentile. The church now is primarily engaged in destroying the principalities and powers that are behind the different tribes and nations. We're attacking the lies that hold people in slavery. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. Therefore, the principles of warfare in Deuteronomy 20 then apply to our warfare against principalities and powers. Again, particularly those lies that hold societies under their power. Because of Christ, our application to the civil magistrate will also be different. While we still expect to prioritize our own people and nation in the affairs of the world, we recognize that in warfare... The various nations that do not have the unique place of the Israelites as they entered the promised land, we recognize that in warfare that various nations do not have that unique place that the Israelites had as they entered the promise of, uh, a promised land. No nation can claim to be God's special people. Physical wars today simply do not have the sanction of God as Israelite war did. You'll notice in the scriptures, whenever Israel goes to war rightly, they first seek the wisdom of God. That means we need to use biblically inspired wisdom to understand which wars are just and which are unjust today. While the Jews had a unique place in God's plan, and so also had an understanding of war that clearly privileged the Jewish people above other tribes and nations. There's an exception when Jews were in rebellion against God. That's not Christ. That means that that is something that nations need to consider when we develop rules for warfare. We can see, for example, something like the rules that the Genevan Convention in the early 20th century wrote down for warfare are in line with the teaching of Scripture, even if they do not reflect exactly what is written down in Deuteronomy 20. They are developed from attempts on the part of the church to intervene between warring nations of Europe in the Middle Ages. And even though they are different, we can see that principles from Deuteronomy 20 that apply. Now, in this sermon, I'm not going to so much focus on that. That's probably most of what I'll say on that. But I want to focus more on what the church can take from God's teaching. And so, I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, God instructs us in our warfare. First, we'll look at courage, the importance of courage. Second, we'll look at conduct, how we are to conduct that war. And third, care how we are connected with conduct, but uh, how we are to be careful in that war. So beginning with courage. Attitudes to have in war is courage. 
The soldier needs the courage, the confidence to stand and continue to do his duty even when he faces overwhelming odds. Connected to this is discipline, particularly the discipline to push the enemy while the air is filled with the groans of fallen companions, with the awareness that you might die too. However, you continue to do your duty. And it was the discipline of the Roman, or the Roman army and the British army that allowed them to be so successful, often against overwhelming odds. Now, the discipline of the Israelite army has similarities, but it's also different because it is the discipline of trust in the true God. The Israelite soldier, if he trusted in God, had the same boldness that the Roman soldier or the British soldier might have had, but it was based on something far more real. God had promised that if they trusted in him, they would win. If we look at the book of Joshua and the moments where Israel won, we don't even have the mention of the casualties of Israel. Although that was more common at that time, most of the killing was done while the enemy army was fleeing. But when Israel won, it was complete. And it was out of trust in God. This was confirmed by the priests coming forward and giving the people of Israel a pep talk, reminding them they were fighting God's war and God was on their side. The words of the priests were followed by the officers coming before the people and ensuring two things. First, that those who had not enjoyed the fruit of their hands would have an opportunity to enjoy it. And second, that those who were fearful would have an opportunity to walk away. The first reasons for joining, for, for not joining, are out of God's love for his people. God wants his people to have an opportunity to enjoy the good gifts that he gives. The second exe uh, exception, the fearful and the faint-hearted, is far less noble. God does not give this exception because the coward deserves something good. Rather, he makes this exception because of their effect on their comrades in battle. One speck of rottenness can affect the whole bushel. One coward can turn a well-disciplined army into cowards. Now, this call to courage remains very important to the Christian church. We are engaged in the work of reconciliation, and we must go forward in faith that God blesses us and strengthens us for the work of reconciliation that we are engaged in. Jesus Christ encourages his apostles to speak with boldness as they go out into the world and they proclaim his name. Jesus encourages the disciples repeatedly, do not fear, just as the Lord encourages people Israel repeatedly, do not fear. Our war is not with flesh, even though we fight in the flesh, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10. Our war is against the lies that take hold on a person's heart. So in some ways, our enemies are even more frightening. Therefore, it's all the more important that we stand in the grace of God as we carry on the Lord's work. That we stand confident that God is for us, that God is for the ministry of his church. 
and most importantly for the officers of the church. If we want to find an analog to the Israelite soldier, the leaders of the church would be the best picture. All of Israel is called to be bold, but especially those who encourage the people in their courage. As we stand before God in our meetings and in other places where we are called to lead God's church, we are called to be bold in the face of the lies of this world, recognizing that the the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that boldness ought to be especially evident in the faithful preaching of God's word. Our simple and continual witness to the truth causes the devils and demons to quaver. Connected with that is the the worship of the church. The singing of God's church causes Satan to hide his head. We can see how Israel so often went into battle in the Old Testament singing. It's in our worship that we find the boldness to contest the principalities of this world. It's in in our worship where we are strengthened by the presence of Christ in others And in the Lord's Supper, that strengthens us for our contest with sin each week. Through these divine arguments, we have divine power to destroy strongholds, including every lofty opinion that is raised against Christ. That's why Paul is so urgent with Timothy. Preach the word, ready in season and out of season, in good times and in bad times. demonstrates that this word courage goes well with the word fortitude, a willingness to continue to do our duty even when times are hard. The concession given to the army of the Lord are helpful in discerning good choices for leadership. We often, in fact, use the verses about a new field or a new wife as a reason to not call a young man to leadership, even outside of the offices of the church. And that's a good application of the passage. Of course, understanding there will be exceptions. We also want leaders who are ready to fight for the truth against both false teachers from within and the lies of the age from without, who are ready to take the thoughts of this world captive to Jesus Christ. And of course, we want them to have the courage and the fortitude to continue the work of reconciliation in both good times and bad, both in season and out of season. Men who are ready to lead grounded in faith toward God, even as things seem to go against them. But ultimately, that begins with you. Each Christian is called to courage. And then courage becomes something that is infectious. Courage to stand on the promises so that you may strengthen the church of God. Before my dad went to be a missionary in Toronto, he was a missionary for a short time in New York. The first words he heard from Reverend Schlichel were not, how wonderful to have you. Rather, Reverend Schlichel looked at him and challenged him on whether he was really ready to take on the challenge of spreading the gospel in New York. Reverend Schlichel, whatever faults he may have had, understood that he didn't want a faint-hearted co-worker who would flee when the challenges of ministry were meant. That brings us to our second point, conduct. 
the goal of the holy warfare of Israel was to carve out a special place for the people of God, a place where God could establish a beachhead for his holy people and where he would eventually bring Christ. The war of Israel was holy warfare, war that was sanctioned by God. So the instructions in this passage ought not to be automatically applied to modern warfare though we can see in the distinction between those who are belligerent toward Israel and those who are not, important insights for modern warfare. But primarily, again, this was meant to be, this is meant to be applied to the church. The first type of people God talks about would have been people who dwelt in the land of Canaan but were not of the nations that were under judgment. This would have included groups like the Philistines, or nations that surrounded Israel, that provoked Israel to war, like the Moabites or the Edomites. If Israel laid siege to one of these cities, they were to offer them peace. If the peace was refused and they conquered the city, they were to kill all the fighting age men. On a side note, we can see in chapter 21, concerning the marriage of female captives, that Israel would not have been allowed to engage in rape. But even without that, this does seem barbaric by today's standards. But the reality was that this removed the likelihood of a group gathering among Israel seeking vengeance for their fallen city, especially at that time when ties to family, place, and tribe were very strong. There's also evidence here that God gives special preference to his own people in their wars, for there is an affront to God in the unwillingness to recognize the special nature of the people of God. A different group were to be completely destroyed. These were the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. That was because their iniquity was full. Israel was the hand of the judgment of God in this case. If they failed to do this, they would likely begin to participate in their abominations. We can take lessons from this for Christian warfare as well. Christian warfare, again, is warfare to win hearts and minds for Christ. We must ensure that lies that continue to dwell in the hearts of those who come into the church are destroyed. We must not make any room for them. We must seek to make sure that we all do not give some part of the allegiance that belongs to God to something else. And we recognize in the light of the Canaanites who must be completely destroyed that in some things there is no shared light between the church and the world. We can speak of the light of nature or common grace or natural law. We can find some good things that are true, that are taught by people who do not know the truth. So we can speak of those things, but we also must recognize that some things are simply demonic and must never be allowed in the church. These would most often be things that are referred to as abominations in the Old Testament, such as the worship of a false god, using an image to worship God, the use of child sacrifice, or certain forms of sexual perversity. Similarly, with any sin or sinful attitudes in our own lives, it is silly to speak of subjecting them to Christ. These sinful attitudes must be destroyed. 
crucified on the cross of Christ. We are to hate our sin, our old natures. We want to seek out and destroy them. Unfortunately, like Israel, we permit some of these Canaanites to continue to flourish in our hearts when we ought to be at continual war with them. The problem? Unconfessed sin can lead to greater sin and even to abomination. In all these things, it's important to remember that Jesus Christ won the war first. He's conquered sin and death so that even as I fail, he remains faithful. Come to his throne and he will remove those sins as far from you as east is from west. He is your mercy seat that you may come to at any time and receive forgiveness of sins. And that brings us to our, la- our third point, care. The last part of our chapter is a warning against destroying fruit-bearing trees around the city. It's a warning against scorched earth tactics. Probably one of the most relevant parts for modern warfare, modern warfare where we have had a great deal of scorched earth tactics from supposedly civilized countries. We see God's desire to preserve the creation and his desire to preserve what is fruitful in the siege of a city. Scorched earth tactics, the use of complete destruction of what is good in the land, comes out of a failure to trust in God to determine the end of the war and also a desire for vengeance that goes beyond the vengeance that God allows for. In one of the examples we have of this in scriptures, in the scriptures, we have the nation of Moab rebel against the people of Israel. David had, of course, made them a vassal state of Israel. Now Moab sought to shake off that connection. God shows himself to be with Israel and Judah, who are working together to quell this rebellion. But Israel and Judah decide to use a scorched earth policy in their attack on Moab. They fill the springs with rocks. They cut down every every, uh, good and living thing. They use this, something that God did not condone. The king of Moab in desperation sacrifices his own son, which will in his mind stop the attack. In response, God is wrathful toward Israel. The sense is that Israel pushed Moab to this act of desperation. And God, who was originally for Israel, now sees Israel as no better than Moab. This also is an application to the work of the church. As we've already said, the war of the church is in converting hearts and toppling down lies and bringing every thought in subjection to Jesus Christ. Sometimes, one application of this might be that sometimes the church can treat a particular culture as sacrosanct. The suggestion that missionaries from Europe and the U.S. were sometimes missionaries of Western culture and not of Jesus Christ has some weight to it. We need to be very careful about suppressing good parts of different cultures. There's also a warning against using the gospel like a firebrand. We can think of the warning of uh, James against cursing those who are made in the image of God. 
we do not want to destroy. We do not seek to destroy. We want to transform and conform to Jesus Christ. We want to transform through Jesus Christ. And anything that is fruitful in a given culture or in a given person can be used to build up the church of God. It's best that once a person has received Christ as Lord, to work out the implications of that through uh, conversation and over time. What we commend here is patience and humility as we encourage each person to work out how to order their lives according to the teaching of the Spirit. We are all, after all, in the process of conversion more and more submitting to Jesus Christ as the Spirit works to stitch us together in love, as Christ the great carpenter builds his house so that each part of the house fits together. He is ultimately the one who decides what is fruitful and what is not. The whole passage here is various pieces of wisdom that the church is to prudently work out in her own warfare as she is in conflict with the principalities and powers of this world. We are called to discern where we need to destroy lies, where we need to confront the powers that be, and where we see the wisdom, the fruitfulness of the nations that can be transformed and brought into the church of Jesus Christ to serve the Lord Jesus and become good fruit for the sake of his kingdom. If we approach this task with humility, always recognizing the lordship of Christ in everything, faithful to the work of the ministry of reconciliation, God will give us the wisdom and courage we need, the courage and wisdom we need to defend the faith and so bring all things in subjection to Jesus Christ. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response from Psalm 18, verses 13, 14, and 15.